Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Around the country this week, you have maybe seen the news and you've seen protests. And on many of those signs, on those protest signs, you see my body, my choice. I'm cer- certain you've probably seen that. Probably one of the most common slogans that is... Uh, being paraded around. And I hope when you saw that, you thought back to our text from last week, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, which says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. And God has given us a body. He's created us, and he has redeemed us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are the Lord's. Every action and every thought, every word, everything we do is an act of worship to a holy God. As we said, only a holy God. And in either we're honoring God and glorifying God in our body, or we're honoring and glorifying and selfishly stealing the glory of God for ourselves, and we're worshiping self. And so we have two choices. We either worship and honor God in our body or we worship and honor self. So that's what he says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. And so the question is, what does that look like in real life, right? What does it look like if you're married? Or how does that apply if you're widowed or if you're single? How does that apply if you are in a difficult marriage? And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 answers. So hopefully you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we remember that this letter was written to the church of Corinth. And it was written to respond to some of their questions they had, but also was written to respond to some of their incorrect conclusions, some of their false doctrines, some of their doctrinal errors. In fact, you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 says, now concerning the matters about which you, that's the church of Corinth, wrote. So, so Paul wrote this letter in response. And he was correcting some of their errors. And one of those errors was in regard to sexual intimacy. Now, there's a lot of false ideas that sometimes are believed in the church. Many times, there's two extremes that we find. That's what you see here with this issue in the church. On one extreme, there were some Christians who were saying, hey, we have the freedom to enjoy sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Like, we're not under the law anymore. We're not under the law, so so we can do what we want to do. So stop condemning us for for incest, for adultery, for homosexuality. That's what you see in chapter 5, verse 1. There was a man in the church who was existing and living as a member who was practicing incest with his stepmom. And the church looked the other way. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, there were some who thought that they could practice adultery and, and homosexuality and still inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul said, no, no, those are sins of the past. Christ died to save us from those sins. It's interesting how how that way of thinking still exists in the church, isn't it? In fact, I was reading something a couple weeks ago and, and saw that 
oops, I saw that there was this publishing house, Erdman's, started in 1910. It started publishing John Calvin's works and uh, theologically conservative publishing house at that time when it was started. And it's interesting how they posted this up this past month, and now they showed their true colors and supported Pride Month. And so now they're selling John Calvin's works alongside of works that are supposedly Christian, but they're promoting this sinful lifestyle. And, and the point is that there are kind of that extreme where people say, hey, we're not under the law. We can be Christian and live how we want to. And, and God says, no, actually, that's not true. A, a Christian lives a life of repentance and faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Then on the other side, there are people that said, oh, well, sexually, sexual intimacy, sexual intimacy is, is, is wrong. It's sinful, even in marriage. In fact, the more holy people are people who can abstain from sexual intimacy, even in marriage. And so you can see that in verse 1. That was a false conclusion that some in the church had. And so look at verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which I wrote, well, what was one of those matters? Well, you can see it's in quotations. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul is quoting some of the Corinthian teachers here. And don't mistake that to be true. You know, some people do that. They, they go to a text like this, they pull that out of context, and they use that to support whatever they believe. But actually, Paul was saying, no, that's actually not always true. And so Paul was correcting them in that statement they had made in the letter there. It's interesting how some Christians even still to this day hold this position. It's kind of like the idea that if you're a nun or if you're a monk, that you're more holy because you're celibate. That's what some religions even still continue to teach. But, but Paul corrected that here. The celibate ones are not more holy. You know, Maria, when she went to the convent, she wasn't more holy than when she married, you know, what was it, von, Mr. Von Tropp or whatever it was, right? I mean, it's not, like, it's not like being married is less holy than being single or being single is more holy or there's not one status, one position that's more holy than the other. And sexual intimacy is not inherently sinful. In fact, in marriage, it's the opposite. Sexual intimacy in marriage is holy, it's sacred, it's a blessing, it's a gift, it's obedient to God. And it's only outside of marriage that sexual intimacy is a sin. In my home growing up, we had a room called the living room, which interesting enough was the room you weren't really allowed to live in. But it was, you know, it had a nice couch, kind of whitish kind of couch. It had lush carpet in there. It was a room you could go and sit and you could study. And when visitors came, they could sit in the room. And there's usually the, the nice things in there that we could break easily. And so we weren't allowed to play in there very much. But the point is, it was, it was a very special room. One thing that was definitely never allowed in that room was food. You, didn't, you never took your cereal bowl in there and ate your cereal in the morning. You, you never took your uh, granola bar and ate that in there. There were, there were absolutely to be no crumbs on the table. And we could go to the extreme. We could say, you know what? Mom doesn't want us to eat, does she? And that's not true, right? It's just that mom doesn't want us to eat in that room. 
Like there's actually a room for food. It's called the kitchen with a little dining table there. And that's where our mom wanted us to eat. And wisdom was knowing the appropriate room to eat and not eat. And when we ate our granola bar in that living room, then wisdom was applied to our backside. And we learned pretty quickly. But in a similar way, God is not saying that sexual intimacy is wrong in and of itself. Actually, in marriage, it's right. It's godly. And so in chapter 7, Paul addressed how to glorify God in your body. And he does so for those who are married. Then he talks about those who are widows or widowers. He talks about those who are in a difficult marriage. And then later on, he talks about singles. And that's basically chapter 7 for you. So the question is here, how do you glorify God in your body if you're in those different situations, those different roles in life? What's the main point here Paul makes in this chapter Well, Paul basically says that no matter what your situation is, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're a widow or widower, whether you're in a difficult marriage, no matter your situation, God has placed you there. He has divinely appointed you to be in that situation. You must remain and seek to glorify God in that assignment. In fact, really, I think my proposition, what I really believe this text is talking about the entire chapter here is that because your life has been divinely appointed, you must glorify and serve God in that assignment. And he talks about different assignments, those who are married, those who are divorced, those who are in difficult marriage, those who are single, those who have had a spouse die. And throughout this passage, what you see is really three ways an individual can glorify God in their current context And and first of all, we're going to see that we're to abide by faith in that divinely appointed role. We're going to see that we are to secondly serve God in that responsibility. And then third, we're going to cautiously consider possible exceptions. And this week and next week and maybe the last week, we're going to have that outline in each of these situations. And so this morning, we're really going to look first at those who are married, and then we'll look at those who are single particularly also those who are, I went ahead of one, those who are widows and widowers. I want to show you this in this chapter before we dive into this, that the primary command in this text is to remain, to abide, to abide in that role by faith and serve God there. In fact, look at verse number two. He speaks to the married And he commands them to, in verse 2, have, kind of the idea of to have and to hold. And so so remain in that marriage. In verse 8, he talks to the widows and the widowers. And he says in verse 8, it's good to remain single. Of course, there's an exception with that too in verse 9. Verse 10, he says to those in a difficult marriage, do not separate. Verse 11, remain unmarried. Uh, Do not divorce your wife, verse 11. Verse 12, he should not divorce. Verse 13, she should not divorce. The whole point here is it's like you should remain in the context that you are. And then I think the heart of this passage, the heart of this chapter is found in verses 17 through 24. In fact, I want us to look at verse 17. Notice the teaching here that we are to remain by faith in the role that God has assigned for us. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life 
that the Lord has assigned to him and to which he has, which God has called him. So Paul directed us in any situation that we are in to see that as a divine assignment from God. Notice that in verse 17, lead the life that the Lord has assigned. So, so if you're married in here, God joined you together. Even if you were married before you came to Christ, God joined you together. Let not man put that asunder. If you're single, God has, has you that way for a reason. Every person, every situation, whether difficult, whether delightful, is to be on mission to serve God where he's placed you. And you can see that in verse 17. Only let each person lead. This is a command. This is a present active imperative. It's ongoing. And so the command from God is to continue to stay in that role that God has assigned you, to, to be content and to walk with God there. And there are exceptions, and we'll look at that, but that's what he's calling us to do. I heard someone say once that marriage is like a screen door with flies. Those on the inside are trying to get out, and those on the outside are trying to get in. And I think what you see in that situation is that there's sometimes, not always, but sometimes in marriage and sometimes with those who are single, there's, there can be a discontentment that we have in our hearts. We're not viewing life as divinely ruled by God. And so this is a call to consider God's sovereignty in your life. And you might say, but you don't understand, Pastor Ben. I, I missed the one. Like that guy or that girl, she passed me by. And now I'm married to this lazy bum, you know? I missed it. Like I messed things up. Or, or you might say, you don't understand. We, we actually sinned before we got married. We, we really did some things that were wrong. And you might have made mistakes. You might have even sinned. But God's sovereignty is so amazing that he can take what was meant for evil or even, frankly, sometimes you being pretty stupid, and he can use it for good. And so the question is not, how can I change the past? Because you can't. But the question is, now, how can I trust God in the present? And so over and over in this text, he says, remain, stay and serve where God has placed you. In fact, I want you to notice this in verse 20. I just want to kind of beat us over the head with this, because I think that's what the text does. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain, and notice this, with God. I love that, with God. You're not on your own. Verse 26, I think that, in, the, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains. And so just to put all this together, because your life has been divinely appointed, you are in the situation you are right now because God has placed you there. You must glorify and serve God in your body in that assignment. And so let's look at what that means for those who are married. How should you glorify God in your body as one who is married? Well, abide by faith in your divinely appointed role. Now, you might be single in here, and you might be our child. You might think, I'm going to check out now. This is not for me. But let me just encourage you. This is for all of us. You know why? The, the world preaches 
a wrong view of this right here. Every movie you're out there watching, every message out in the world preaches a wrong view. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to give the holy and righteous view. This is a view that few have heard in this world, okay? This is going to be odd to many people, but this is what God's word teaches. And so all of us should be taking notes and recognizing this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1, now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so some people taught this, and, and they were saying that, 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 that this is what God's word teaches. And Paul said, yes, sexual intimacy outside of marriage is not good, but actually for the married, it's good. And even more than that, it's actually godly. It's actually commanded. Look at verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, that's sexual intimacy outside of marriage, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have, that should say that in there, should have her own husband. In the original Greek, the, the verb should have is found twice in this verse. And I'm not really certain why the ESV leads, leaves it out. But those two verbs are in the imperatives. They are commands. So the Husband has a command from God. And then interesting enough, the wife has a command from God. Both of them have commands, and both of them are to obey them. And what is the command? Well, the Greek word here is a euphemism for sexual intimacy in marriage. Nine times this word is used in the New Testament with that meaning. So Paul responded to the Corinthians, quote, it's not good to have sexual intimacy with verse 2. Actually, it is good within marriage. And not only is it good, but it's actually commanded by God. Notice verse number two. He was not commanding single people to get married. Sometimes people look at this text and they go, oh, that means everyone should be married. Well, that would actually contradict what he's going to say later on. He's, he's saying those who are married, in other words, you already possess a wife, you already possess a husband, this is what you should do. And so how do you glorify God in your body as one who is married? Abide by faith in your divinely appointed role. And so that is, if you're a man and you're married, you are to be the husband God wants you to be. If you're a, a, a woman and you're married, you're to be the wife that God wants you to be. And God has provided marriage as a wonderful gift for us. In fact, what is the reason that God wants us to be married? What's the purpose, I should say, of marriage? Well, marriage is God's sacred institution. Let's remember that. It's God's sacred institution. It's a sacred institution for a man and a woman to unite together for these four reasons. These are the four P's of marriage here. For partnership, right? God gave Eve to Adam so he could have a helper to accomplish the will of God together. And so here you see friendship. Friendship is a key part of marriage. Marriage is for pleasure, Proverbs 15, 18 through 19 says that we are to be enraptured, to be intoxicated with the love of our spouse, to drink water from your own cistern. Number three, marriage is for procreation. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. As God allows, have children and, and seek to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And fourth, marriage is for purity. That's what he taught in verse number two. Look at the very beginning of, of verse number two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, because of the temptation 
a, a husband and a wife has to physically and emotionally give oneself to someone out other than their spouse because of the temptation to, to break the marriage covenant, then each man, verse 2, each man should have, each man should enjoy to be intimate with his own wife. And each woman is to have, to enjoy, to be intimate with his, her own husband. So sexual intimacy in marriage helps maintain purity in the marriage. It doesn't guarantee it. So don't get tricked there to say it guarantees it. It doesn't guarantee it. You make your own choices in life, but it definitely helps and aids to protect the marriage. And look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife dies, does. Do not deprive one another. And so what's our second point? How do you glorify God in your body as one who is married? Serve God in your responsibility. And what is your responsibility? It's to serve God by giving of yourself to your spouse. To highlight really the importance of this, four times in, in these verses, verse 2, 3, and 5, Paul uses an imperative, present tense, active verbs. He uses four commands here. And so you see here the, the present tense is ongoing. It's active. It's a decision that you must obey. So look at verse 2. You see two words here, to have. If you have an ESV, you only see one. But in the Greek, there's two. And then in verse 3, the command to give. And then in verse 5, the command is not to deprive. Why does he command this? And why does he command it so many times? I think it's because God wants us to understand that he thinks this is important in marriage. God wanted to make it clear this is not a suggestion. This is a righteous, this is a holy command from God. And this is in the present tense because this is to be an ongoing, regular a part of your relationship. It's a sin to pursue sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Listen to this. It's actually a sin to withhold it within marriage. And so verse 3, the husband should give. And likewise, the wife should give. The word give here is to pay what is owned these are financial terms. In fact, I think the NASB does the best job of translating this verse. Listen to the NASB translates it like this. The husband should fulfill his duty towards his wife and likewise the wife toward her husband. So again, the idea is that you, you pay what you're owed, what you owe, I should say that way, you pay what you owe. I was thinking about this past week, the first house that we bought in South Carolina, we bought it for $90,000. Can you believe that? I was looking online about it this morning, and it's a, it was a 1,300-square-foot house, and I was thinking it, it definitely is not worth that today. It's worth a lot more. But we signed our first mortgage, and we're faced with the reality that I had to pay a school bill, and uh, my wife was not able to work anymore because we had a baby in the hospital, and I had to pay the mortgage, and I had to pay that. Like There was no getting out of that that document that I signed, we had to pay what we owed. And that's the word that's used here. That doesn't seem very romantic, doesn't it? Does it? It's like pay what you're owed. 
Well, that's because romance is not the foundation of marriage, right? That's what the movies say. It's like, oh, that the, if, if the romance isn't there anymore, maybe go looking somewhere else. But you're married because you made a contract, a covenant with another person before God. You're not married because the romance remains hot. Husbands, we should be romantic. And many of us need to remember how we courted our wives, right? There should be romance in the relationship. You should work on that. Romance can help your marriage, but it's not the reason you do what you do. We should do what we do in marriage, from from doing the dishes to picking up stuff from the store to changing the dirty diapers or whatever it is because we want to obey God, because we love God. It's the reason why we should do everything in our life. If love for God motivates your marriage, then sacrificial love will fill your marriage. And, And the truth is, If I love God first, I will love my wife the best. If I love God first, I will love my wife, or if you're a woman, your husband the best. So in marriage, we do what we do because we love God. We made an oath before him. Husband and wife in this room, or those listening to me online, When you were married, you made a covenant together before God on that wedding day. It it was a contract to have and to hold, to fulfill your duty to serve and satisfy your spouse's need for intimacy. And that never means that a person should make demands. It does not mean that there's a person who's a dictator that gets to tell people what to do or the other person what to do. That's not sacrificial love. That's selfish lust. And that is uncalled for in marriage. Love means that you look at the other person's needs, that you give of yourself to your spouse. Look at verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And in most cultures, in most societies, frankly, most Sinful things you find on the internet and on TV, it stops right there. And, and that's, this, is, this is a revolutionary statement to go on to say, and likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Sexual intimacy is not about meeting my demands, what I demand, what I want. That's lust. That's a twisted view. That's, that's what most porn, that's how most porn views that. That's how Satan wants to warp the mind of this young generation. It's all about you. It's all about fulfilling your own desires. And even some of you enter into marriage thinking that it's all about them. But the biblical view of sexual intimacy is that in marriage, my body is to be used to serve the other person. And notice the wife is to use her body to serve her husband and the husband is to use his body to serve his wife. I mean, this is Philippians chapter 2, Verses three and four in marriage. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And you know, many people look at this and they would never connect this to what we're talking about. You know why? Because they have a completely 
sinful and wrong view of this right here. What? Isn't it about me? No, it's not. How many guys and girls have I counseled in premarital counseling? And, and, and these guys have these one-track minds. And I tell these guys, listen, guys, you are to enter into marriage to serve that person. It's not about, this is marriage so I can have all my dreams fulfilled. No, this is about coming into this in unity with your wife and serving her. And you know the best marriages, the most enjoyable marriages are the ones that serve one another. I mean, this is true in any context of life. When we serve people, God has designed our souls, our minds, and really our bodies to to really experience a sense of joy and satisfaction as we give to others. I mean, Jesus said, it's more blessed to what? To give than to receive. And that applies in the church here. That applies with our neighbors, with helping someone in need. That's giving to missions, but also within marriage. And if you want a joyful marriage, stop being selfish in your relationship. Stop manipulating by using intimacy or withholding intimacy as a punishment. Stop sinning by using it as just a reward. That's sinful and that's wrong. But love gives. Love gives without expecting anything in return. So husbands, I think it's good for us to consider how can you, how can you unselfishly, sacrificially, sensitively, compassionately serve your wife? It's going to look different for the husband than it is for the wife. Because why? Unlike what the world teaches, we're actually different, right? Right? And so, so as, a, as a husband, we have to think of it differently, not, not what would I want, so that's very, therefore what she wants. It's how can I be compassionate to her? What are words that I can say that can help her? Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. That might be something to think about. Maybe there's something that you have done that has not helped the relationship. But the point is, what can you do? And, and wives, too, consider how can you give of yourself to meet the needs of your husband? And of course, this is not talk about someone who is, uh, has a physical difficulty or a physical disability or sickness. You can't obey in things that you actually are not able to obey. But 1 Corinthians 7 should be clear on how a husband and wife are to glorify God in their body. In fact, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, do not deprive one another. If you look back at chapter uh, 6, verse 8, you can see that this is the same word as defraud. This means to rip off. This means to steal. This, this is really the difference between lust and love. Lust is about me. Lust is all about my demands. Lust is, has no consideration about the other person. But, but love is sacrificial. Love gives without strings attached. The Bible says that Marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. How did Christ love his church? He gave. He sacrificially gave himself for the church by dying on the cross. 
He gave his life so we could have life. And that's what marriage should be like. A husband and wife should sacrificially for the good of the other person without strings attached, serve that person. Not based upon any works that that person has done, but because, not because that person deserves it, but because you desire to show grace and kindness and love like Christ does. And that is not heard of in this world, is it? But that's how we should approach marriage And so, how do you glorify God? Oh, I guess I lost the third point. You're going to have to write it in yourself. And that is cautiously consider possible exceptions. Cautiously consider possible exceptions. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come Together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul was not recommending this exception, but he did acknowledge that a couple might decide together to spend a period of time fasting in prayer. And so he said, this could be permitted to do it this way. And notice some qualifications. First, it must be a mutual agreement One spouse cannot on their own decide they're going to fast in this way. It has to be an agreement together. It must be agreed upon for the purpose of replacing the, the physical intimacy with the spiritual intimacy of prayer. But again, he wrote this caution at the end of verse 5, but then come together again so that, here's the caution, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's look at one last category here. This is the category of those who are widowed or those who are widows or widowers. Look at verse number six. How do you glorify God in your body as one who is a widow or widower? Verse six, now as a concession, not as a command, I say. Now, if you look at the end of verse six there, that this is actually very difficult to know if it is referring back to verse five or referring to verse 7, and and commentaries are all all over the place on that. My conclusion is it refers to verse 7, so you could read it like this. Now, as a concession, I'm not commanding this, but this is my opinion. This is my personal preference. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. What was Paul's marital status? He was unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Notice God is the one who appoints and gives you the role you have. Each has his own gift from who? From God. That word gift is the singular noun for grace. So God gives a grace. He gives a gift. And what is that grace? Particularly for Paul, it is the ability an opportunity to remain unmarried and dedicate his life to serve God. So look at verse 8. Paul wrote, To the unmarried and widows. In the Greek, unmarried is masculine, widows is feminine. So I, I think probably what he's talking about here, he's saying to widowers, that is a man who has lost his wife, and to widows, that is a woman who has lost her husband, And I think that's who he's addressing here. I think you could apply this to those who are single as well, although he will address that later on in chapter 7. And there's a couple other reasons I think it's that 
case, and from verse really 2 down to verse number 16, you find these are in pairs. You find the husband and wife, and now you see the widow and widower together. But anyways, how does, how does one abide, or how does one glorify God in your body as one who is a widow or widower? And first, abide by faith in that divinely appointed role. God has sovereignly taken that spouse away from you. Now that is a hard thing to say. It's difficult to say, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge. The Lord gave. When you received that spouse at the marriage altar, the Lord gave. He put you together. And, and if your spouse passes away, we recognize that sometimes the Lord takes away. No matter what, we should praise the Lord. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. And so we must believe that God has appointed even this difficulty for a purpose. And that doesn't mean that you don't miss that person. It doesn't mean that you don't cry sometimes longing for that person back in your life. It doesn't mean that you don't long for companionship again. But it does mean that you submit your heart to the sovereignty of the king and ask, how can he use my, my current situation to serve him? I mean, again, look down in chapter 7, verse 17. Remember our, our really our key verse in this text, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him. You're on assignment. It might not be the assignment you wanted to sign up for, but God put you on that assignment. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I think Elizabeth Elliot is a great example of this. As a very young woman with a two-year-old uh, child, Elizabeth became a young widow. In 1956, her husband Jim and four other men went on a daring mission to reach the Aka tribe with the gospel. And all five men were brutally murdered. Elizabeth found herself without a husband in a very lonely place, but she chose to trust God. And she, with, with her two-year-old Valerie and Rachel Saint, one of the sisters of the men who were martyred, they went into the tribe. They lived with that tribe who murdered their brother for Rachel and husband for Elizabeth, lived with them for two years. Think about that. But they believed God had called them to that. And they were, at the end of that two years, able to lead many of those people to Christ. And she said this, this is a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, I cannot say to you, that I know exactly what you're going through. Now, she went through some pretty hard things. But think about this, if you're widowed or a widower, but she said, but I can say that I know the one who knows. And I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And if we will trust him for it, we will come to the unshakable assurance that he's in charge, 
that he has a loving purpose, that he can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. And she lived that truth of the scriptures. And so, secondly, how should you glorify God in your body as one who is a widower or widow? Serve God in that responsibility. In verse 8, the scripture says to the, look at verse 8, to the unmarried, that's the widowers, and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The word good means best. Why might that be best? Well, Paul will answer that a little later on, but his answer, later on in chapter 7, but his answer will be that that, that person who's unmarried can wholly devote himself or herself to serving Christ and the church and spreading the gospel. I mean, that's why Paul was able to do what Paul was doing. I mean, Paul, as many think Paul, was a widower. He definitely was single at this point. We know that. But some say that he was a widower because uh, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, in order to be a devoted Pharisee, he would have had to been married. And he's not married here. And so many conclude that his wife died at some point. And Paul chose to see his current status as a gift from God to be able to fully devote himself to building the kingdom of God. I mean, think about what God accomplished through Paul. I mean, could, could he have done that with, with a, a wife and, and five children behind him? I mean, he's going from town to town. He's getting beaten for the sake of the gospel. I mean, some places he's left for dead. I mean, think about how much more difficult that would have been for him. And so he said, it's actually a gift for me. He chose to see that. And again, let's go back and let's remember that he's not saying that it's better to be single. It's more holy to be single, I should say, than to be, to be married or vice versa. He's saying, but, but there's, there's situations like this where actually it's, it's better to remain single if you can devote your whole life to the Lord in that way. In fact, look down in verse 32, just to give you a little taste of this to come. Verse 32 says that the unmarried man, that's the single man or woman you could say as well, is anxious or concerned or should be focused on the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Look down in verse 35. You can see this as well. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. And notice this, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul's point here is this. If you're a, a widow or a widower, or even the last part of this chapter, if you're single, your responsibility before God is to focus your undivided attention upon him and to serve him in the context that God has placed you. The marriage should do that as well. So we're not, it's not like they're opting out of this. They should do that as well, but it's, it's just practical. They have some other things that they got to focus on. But the single can secure undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what he's calling these widows and widowers to do. And then notice the, the third caution here. Well, I don't know if I have it. We'll see. The third caution. Cautiously consider the exception. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with 
compassion. And so he, he, he says here, it's actually honorable, or the scripture says, actually honorable to be married. Let marriage be held in high honor. He who finds a wife, Proverbs says, finds a good thing. An excellent wife, who can find it? She's far more precious than jewels. Again, so he's not saying that you should not get married. Marriage is a bad thing. He's not saying that at all. The Bible actually says the opposite. Actually, marriage is a wonderful gift. But, but he's saying for some people, it's actually better for them to remain single so they can focus on the Lord. But he says in verse 9, here's something to consider. And that is that if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should go ahead and get married. So if you're single, it's a blessing to be married. And so if you desire to be married and you find a person that loves the Lord, then that's a blessing for you. You can, by God's grace, go forward with that. But you also must approach that with caution, right? Being in a good marriage is like heaven. It's wonderful. Being in a marriage with someone who's wicked and is, is the opposite. And so if you're considering marriage, you actually should consider it, consider it very seriously. Cautiously consider the exception. What's the conclusion for all of us? Well, we, we are all to be devoted to where God has assigned us. If you are single, if you are a widow or a widower, accept that as God's assignment and put your full devotion and attention on the Lord and his church. If you're at home as a, as a teenager or a child, serve the Lord in that home. Devote yourself to growing in Christ and serving him. Live in purity by saving your mind and your heart and your body for your future spouse. If God gives you that direction of life, if he assigns that to you, if you're married, fulfill your responsibility to your spouse. Serve God by serving your spouse. Live in purity by giving your mind and your heart and your body to your spouse. Maybe you're in here and you're without Christ. Maybe you're visiting today and you think, what in the world is this pastor preaching on? Who comes to a Sunday morning and preaches on this text? Well, I want you to know a couple of things. We preach verse by verse and we believe that this is God's word. And everything God's word says when it's understood in its proper context, like we talked about, we should obey. We should believe. And really the most important thing for every person in here, God's greatest desire for you is to be reconciled with him. So you can't, I should say, you, you are not reconciled to God because of your sin. And you can't reconcile yourself. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. He came to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised in victory in the resurrection. If you turn from your own way, if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says he can save. He will forgive you of all your sins. He will give you the gift of eternal life. You can come to him today. Let's pray.